Hello and welcome to another Books of the Year podcast. He's Matt Williams. and he's, Yes, I am. Yes, and um, with us we have Michelle Paver and John Boyne to talk about uh, the latest books. Hello, Michelle. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very Simon. nice to see you again. John Boyne. How nice to see you, John. Always good to be here. Yeah, and the last time, that's the right answer. Yeah. <laughs> and the last, the last time you were on it was our most downloaded podcast. Well, that's very flattering. So we've, I hope this know, one does as well. Yeah, we well, have to work your magic again. Uh, Matt, do you want to describe the books yes. that we're looking at here? Okay, so let's start with Michelle's, uh, which um, has, well, what we're looking at mainly, what is going to catch your eye on the shelves the most is uh, a magpie uh, about to land in a very um, dynamic pose, uh, black and white as you'd expect, obviously, and then drips of blood uh, over, the, over the cover with Wakenhurst, Michelle Paver beneath it. And then John's book is uh, is dominated by the rainbow colours, and uh, and then picked out on those um, swatches of 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 colour is my brother's name is Jessica, and brother uh, has the uh, international symbol uh, for woman uh, on the O, and Jessica has the symbol for man uh, on the C. Well Boy, yes, uh, boys will be boys except when they can't. Uh, John Boy. They're the books we're discussing uh, with John Boyne and Michelle Paper. Michelle, can you take us into the world of, of Wakenhurst? Because yeah. I think we get a flavour from the way Matt has been sure. describing the cover. But you, this is apparently the book that you've been wanting to write for a long time. So just take us into this it is. world. It's, in two words, it's Fenland Gothic. Uh, 1906, the Suffolk Fens. Um, my heroine, Maud, is an Edwardian girl. Brought up in growing up in a, a remote manor house, a life dominated by her father, who's intensely religious, hates women, um, hiding a guilty secret, and one one day he f- discovers um, a medieval painting of devils dragging sinners into hell. He discovers this in the churchyard, and his guilt starts to surface. And as Maud grows to womanhood, her, her life becomes a, a battle of wills with her father. Um, is he going mad? Or is there really something out there in the fens? So, as I say, it's a gothic novel. So, And why is this the novel that you've been wanting to write for a long time? I first read about the fens and their folklore uh, when I was researching the first novel I ever, I ever published 20 years ago. And I always thought that was there's so much in there, you know, demons, ghosts, creeping unease, this sort of liminal world of neither land nor water. You know, it's a strange world. And the fens, as they used to be, of course, it's largely drained now. Um but it was took a long time to to come up with a story, and then and then sort of three ideas came together in the matter of weeks, just by chance. You know, I read about this painting, the Weniston Doom, that had been discovered in a churchyard. It had been whitewashed by the Puritans, chucked out in the churchyard, and then um, in the Victorian times they were going to burn it, and then it rained, and somebody noticed some painting. You know, and and so that was an element, and I had this image of this man standing in a churchyard, seeing a demonic painted eye staring up at him um and that was an element and then i went to an exhibition of richard dad a, a painter who painted these weird teeming paintings and but he painted them in broadmoor because he'd killed his father with an axe so that was another element that um and then um the, the third one was this just picking up a secondhand book in oxfam written by a rather mad 15th century mystic and all these things came together and then talking to my 91-year-old aunt about the family history of her great-grandmother, it, it, you know, I started to sort of see my heroine, Maud, and she's the sort of beating heart of the story. So she's based on family history. And the other things all came together in this rather 
Gothic swirl. Yes, well, the Gothic, Gothic swirl is is very clear. Tell us more about Maud then, because it does all... It does all hinge on her. It does all swing around her. Yeah, and, and she, as I say, well, she was based on actually my great-grandmother um, and, and that side of the family, the Belgian side, um, because she, the women in the, my side of the family had a tough life um, because the men were pretty horrible, I think. Um, my great-grandfather was a woman-hater. My The woman, the child who grew up to be my grandma was so scared of him, she used to hide under the table when he came home. And my poor great-grandma, she used to, well, she had seven children. Uh, three died in one week. Um, and I think it was a huge relief when he finally, you know, shuffled off his mortal coil. Um, but it was that sort of feeling of being trapped. You know, Maud has, has only one choice. Well, she's either going to be a, a wife or an old maid. And she's not particularly pretty, so she's going to end up as an old maid. And um, so it's it's not just a gothic story. It's also about, you know, the fact that this this girl had no choices. And it, I have to say, it made me so glad that I'm living, you know, now and not then. <laughs> I really did. I, I think it's, it's a rare talent you have, Michelle. This is the third of your books that I... Because we had you uh, on the on the book club uh, when we were on Radio 2. You came on twice for that. You were one of the first authors we had on. And I, I remembered as I was reading this how I felt when I was reading uh, Dark Matter and Thin Air, which was I didn't want to read them alone at night. And that is a rare skill to, to produce that kind of visceral... Um, reaction from, from from a reader. Now, I want to ask you about um, about the relationship between Maud and mm. her father, and there is um, there is a sequence um, that happens very early on, which um, since I finished the book days later, it stayed with me, and uh, it felt to me at the time. I'm not sure whether it was something that you were conscious of as you were writing it that this is mm. this is going to produce a real reaction from the reader but it absolutely did with me uh maud comes down so so, so maud is very very young um mm. but she's a young girl and she's supposed to be in bed and she comes downstairs and edward her uh, her father is having a discussion with someone in the room and she's supposed to be in bed and she she comes downstairs and he comes to tell her off and, mm. and basically say you need to go back upstairs and as he's doing so, he pushes her gently, but pushes her, obviously, with his fingers. And she has this electric reaction to that and reveals that this is the first time mm. that her father has ever touched her. Mm. And I was, I was like, what? The first time her father has ever touched her? Goodness me. Yeah. And I, I wonder whether, was it because it felt it's such an evocation of that time where, uh, you know, yeah. a, a fa- the, the very idea that a father wouldn't have touched, wouldn't have physically touched his child, but the, the thrill, because even though she's being told off, she's thrilled that her father has touched. I know. And that's really interesting that you say that, Matt. Um, I didn't know at the time that I was going to write that, but it did come from my own family, actually from my grandfather, um, the chap who eventually married the little girl who was hiding under the table. And uh, he had a fairly tough upbringing, Edwardian. And um, he remembered the time when his mother had taken her onto his la- onto her lap and actually addressed him by name because it only happened once. Wow. <laughs> and, you know, and he told this quite matter-of-factly. I mean, he'd been through two world wars and all the rest of it. Um, but I remember looking at my mother and sort of, what, what? So, but I, I wasn't even consciously thinking of that at the time. So that sort of thing comes up from your subconscious. Um, yeah. Maud's, Maud's father um, writes diaries, has written yeah. 
diaries which we which we read and we learn about him and uh, and his past at kind of at the same time uh, the more does does he does he know he's mad or going mad what is the conflict going on in his, in his well head? is he mad i mean that, that of firstly that's the, that's the question um is he is he are we looking at mental disintegration or is there really something out there in the fens um i think at times he he does know that he's not acting rationally because he's 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 an historian he's a medieval historian um, but it was huge fun writing him. I always like getting into characters who are under enormous strain, and he is under enormous strain. I mean, a lot of people really dislike Edmund, but um, perhaps because I wrote him, uh, you know, and he is under enormous strain because he does carry this huge burden of guilt, um, which would be enough to drive anyone. So mad. you sympathise with him? I found it very difficult to sympathise with him. Well, I think, I don't know whether John finds this, but I mean, I, I really enjoy writing very unsympathetic characters because you do have to sympathise in the sense of getting into their heads because otherwise you wouldn't be writing them. Uh, and it is hugely fun. I mean, I wouldn't like him as a person and, and I think he does horrible things, but everybody has a reason, you know. Yeah, I, I like writing villains. A little <laughs> bit. They are fun. I was asked a question the other day about which I prefer heroes or villains and I went for villains. Yeah. I think in my last book, you know, I, I had a really sociopathic character at the centre of A Ladder to the Sky and it was fun you know to see yes. how far I could push him and see whether the reader would still you, 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 st you want the reader to sort of not that you approve of their actions, but still want to see how bad they'll get. Like we do with Hannibal Lecter. Exactly. We don't want him to stop eating people. We want him to keep going. So um, it's the same. I, I think they are kind of fun to write. Yes. Don't we want him to be caught and to face justice? Hannibal Lecter? No. Definitely not. But I, oh, I, I don't. Do. I mean, there's something wrong with me. Oh, no, um, I, I like him I eating people. <laughs> Okay, this is very interesting. So what do... Because no, Michelle Malcolm Bradbury's won... novel, Eating People, is wrong. So... <laughs> That's an interesting divide. You I, want him. You want him to carry on eating. No, I, I do eventually want justice to be done, uh, particularly in the case of serial killers. No, I'm, I'm not in favour of them roaming the land <laughs> eating We're people. Serial killers. <laughs> um, I mean, this is the highest type of praise, Michelle. But you reading your book reminded me of a feeling that I had when I watched the film Magic with Anthony Hopkins Ooh. many, many years yes. ago, where you spend pretty much. I mean, I haven't seen it for decades, mm. but I seem to remember thinking. This is this is very smart and very clever because we don't actually know whether the ventriloquist dummy is possessed or whether it's all going on in Anthony Hopkins' mm. head. And as the film progresses, you come to a particular conclusion. And but it's filmed, and it's a terrifying book, and it's a terrifying film. And reading your book, I think it's so deftly balanced because you're thinking, well, I don't. I don't know, is there, like you said, is there something mm. going on here? You know, this is gothic horror or is it, am I being slightly old-fashioned or is, mm. should I be looking at it with a slightly more contemporary mind? And, and that, that fine line, you, you tread all the way through. Thank you for that. Uh, jolly difficult to tread that fine line. <laughs> um, it, it took a lot of, uh, of care. And, and what interests me is, is the responses of readers because some readers will come down very definitely on one side or the other. Um, for reasons that I may not have anticipated, um, and like, like what, for example? Well, some will say, "Well, of course, of course, there, there's something out there in the fence." Because what about the waterweed? I mean, I don't want to give spoilers mm, yeah. away, but you know, well, what about that? Explain that, um, and and that's that's fine, you know. I I, I, I because I, I've learned not to be dictatorial. In in my first ghost story, Dark Matter, I was convinced there was a ghost. I said, you know, well, even the dog saw the ghost. You know, how can you think there's not one? Because I, I'd sort of 
subconscious, unconsciously rather, not subconsciously, unconsciously written it with that ambiguity in. I think it's the only way I can write a frightening story and make it frightening because I think the psychological element is more frightening than if there is just something out there. Did you read it with the lights on? Uh, no, I didn't. Absolutely. Couldn't, <laughs> couldn't, couldn't cope with it with the lights on. Have you ever been terrified, John, re- re- reading a book in, say, the last 10 years? Has a, a, has a book sort of disturbed you like that? Well, you, you know what I read last year for the very first time? I read The Shining. I, I'd no, never read the Shining. a frightening book. Yeah. I, I thought I, I read it years ago, but I f- yeah. found that frightening. Yeah, book I found that I found that a bit um, yeah. unsettling, and it, I, I think it's very hard to produce that emotion mm. in in fiction. It's mm. it takes like a really talented writer to do to do that, but. Um, I hadn't read too much Stephen King, and it made me think, "Gosh, I should read all these Stephen King classics that I've never got around to." Mm. Um, yeah. Yes, he is—he is very good at inducing paranoia. Mm. Joey mm. kept it in the freezer, didn't he? In Friends, he put The Shining in the freezer because it was the only place he felt safe. <laughs> Joey kept it in the freezer sounds like the name of your next book, John. <laughs> yeah. I, it <laughs> definitely sounds book. like a you know that serial killer. Yeah, yeah, that's all right, isn't it? Joey kept it in the freezer. I'm just going to make a note of that one. <laughs> uh, Michelle Paver and John Boyner here. This is Books of the Year podcast, and uh, we'll talk to John about my brother's name is Jessica after this. Michelle Paver's book is Wakenhurst, and uh, John Boyne's new book is My Brother's Name is Jessica. This is the Books of the Year podcast. Uh, Matt's already described the cover, and I think from the words on the cover, we get a sort of a hint as to the direction that uh, that your book is going. John, this is another one of your children's books. Is it children's book? YA book? Uh, young adult, I guess. Uh, it's a young adult titles. Tell us about the brother and tell us about Jessica. Well, the novel is narrated by a 13-year-old boy, Sam, who uh, his whole life has looked up to and admired his older brother, who has been the best footballer in school, great older brother, always looked after Sam. And at the end of the first chapter, um, Jason, as was, comes down the stairs and says to his family, actually, I don't think I'm a boy, I believe I'm a girl. So the novel, um, over the course of about six months, it explores the family, well, particularly Sam's um, struggle with this as he tries to come to terms with his sister's identity um, and to um, he's embarrassed by it a bit he's a bit humiliated he's frightened by changes in the status quo in the house and both he and the parents are not very supportive uh, because they don't really understand what's going on and they don't take an awful lot of time to find out what's going on whereas Jessica on the other hand is sure about who she is about this decision is the right decision this is how she can live her life in the happiest most authentic way um, so it's really about a kid going on a, a journey of acceptance and trying to and getting him to put aside his prejudices, his lack of understanding of something, and realize that Jessica is exactly the same person she always was, just with a different name, a different um, gender identity. But she's as kind, as smart, as loving as ever. And how did you come to tackle this issue in a in a novel? What was what was your journey? Well, I hate the J word. I don't know why I use it. It's that very word, X Factor. Sorry, yes. Yeah. Explain why you wrote um, this book. I, <laughs> that's the same question. Uh, well, you know, the, 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 the subject of transgender is out there so much in the media and the culture, and we hear so much more about it now than we did 10 years ago or even five years ago. And the more I heard about it, the more, I, well, firstly, the more I realized I didn't know very much about it. Um, but then I, you know, over a, couple, over a few years, I suddenly had a couple of trans friends and hearing their stories uh, was very interesting to me. And as somebody who's gay and knowing what it was like to grow up feeling different 
from other people in the class, um, I felt I know a little bit about that subject. So I, I always find, I, I don't know you, Michelle, but I sometimes find the things I don't know about, if I want to explore them, I'm going to do it through fiction. You know, I'm going to... I totally know. agree. I write about what I don't know. Yeah, exactly. I totally agree. It's the yeah. best, it's the best yeah. way. And, um, and I thought this is, I thought there's probably not that much out there for kids who are either seeing their friends going through some struggle like this mm. or who themselves are going through a struggle like this. And I wanted to write something positive about it, that even though the narrator, Sam, is occasionally unkind and cruel towards his sister through the book, he gets there. You know, I don't think it gives any spoilers away to say this is a happy story. And he gets there, Jessica gets there. And to show kids that, you know what, it's fine. I know it seems like the end of the world, but actually there are people out there who are your allies, who are your friends, who will support you and be with you. Were you always going to write it from the point of view of the the younger brother who is struggling to come to terms with this change in his brother slash sister? Did you think at all about writing it from Jason slash Jessica's perspective? I, I didn't think for a moment about writing it from Jessica's perspective because I felt that would be a step too far. That's putting myself into the shoes of... I can put myself into the shoes of, like, a bodyguard to the Russian czar or a First World War soldier <laughs> or something like that. But I thought that's... In some weird way, it feels like this... The story of being transgender is not for me to tell it from that perspective. Instead, what I've often done in, in my books for young readers is to put a child at the centre of a very adult experience, a naive innocent little boy, usually good-hearted, and have him ask the questions, have him say, ask the stupid questions and make the insensitive comments as he's trying to understand it. Because that is what we all do, you know, with a subject like this. Um, I don't know what, what each of your experiences are on it, but most of us are coming to it from a place of, you know, relative ignorance. And it's a minefield, you know, and you can just say the wrong thing. You can use the wrong pronoun. You can um, say something by mistake that you don't mean as offensive, but can be taken that way. Uh, so I felt for me, it's kind of representing most of us as readers where you're saying, I just, I just don't understand what's going on. Please explain it to me. That's what that, that's what I took most from this because I I started this book knowing that my uh, knowledge of of this area was uh, woefully inadequate, and um, I I I knew I was going to be fine in your hands in that uh, within first twenty pages I'd laughed out loud three times, and I I I, I remember that point when sort of my wife came into the room and was asking why I was laughing, and I knew at that point this this is going to be fine. John's going to take me through this, and I, uh, having your book from last year was one of the well, certainly was my favourite book that we did on this um, show last year. I want to talk to you about um, there is a sequence which my instinct is most people who read this book um, from my perspective will and will will stick with them the, the most, and I, I definitely think that I will not be the first person to bring this up with you, but. The sequence that stayed with me the longest afterwards was when his um, or when Jessica's football coach comes to visit the family, and they are all expecting that this football coach, uh, who feels so um, uncomfortable, uh, is needs a beer before he can start talking to them. They feel he is about to say there is no place for Jessica on this football team. He doesn't say that, and I don't want to say what he says. But that sequence absolutely, and I and I felt to myself as I was reading it, 
in the hands of a different author, in the hands of uh, someone who hasn't uh, recognised what is at the heart, with the beating heart of this of this book, this could have been a very different sequence and would have made me feel very different. I, th- I think you absolutely nailed it in that it is something that, that, again, produced that emotional reaction in me that I thought, oh my goodness. Well, thank you for that. I think when I was writing that part, what I felt was that at this point in the story, Jessica has enough antagonists. She's got it in her younger brother. She's got it in her parents. Actually, we need some allies as well. And yeah, I wanted that to be a surprise because the coach is effectively saying, actually, I'm here to talk about something important, which is football. <laughs> you know, and football is more important than what you're going through, my friend. And, um, and, and it, you know, it, one of our jobs as writers, I think, is to actually subvert the expectations Absolutely. of readers at times. Mm. You know, it, it, it'd be so simple to say that like a football coach is going to be this type of person. You know, none of us are this type of person. We're all different and complicated and um, surprising at times. So it was, I, I thought it was good to do that, to have a character who just knows what's going on, but just kind of doesn't see the big deal. And that Jessica would then be kind of encouraged by that. And and Sam, the narrator, would be so shocked by it that he, he would start to think to himself, you know, why am I obsessing about this all the time? Is there something... What am I missing here? Why, why isn't it a big deal for the person that we think it's going to be a big deal for? Um, but that's that's part of the education process. That's part of the, the confusion along the way. Michelle, you were nodding in agreement to that. Well, I, I was, but you know, also because I really enjoyed the book. Um, and I particularly, uh, when you mentioned, you know, subverting expectations. Um, I mean, again, I'm, I'm not going to spoil anything. But the, the thing I really loved, the sequence I really loved was when Sam, the younger brother, who I think is brilliantly realised, because um, I've been a younger sister, uh, so a younger sibling, um, he, he creeps into his brother slash sister's room when the brother slash sister is sleeping and does something quite shocking, um, which, you know, has an impact on, on the rest of the story. And I didn't, I didn't see that coming. And I, I love it when I don't see things coming. And I, all through this book, you know, there were unexpected things. I, I, la- I agree with you, Matt, I laughed. Mm. You made but me laugh a lot. So and I don't laugh very often <laughs> when I'm reading a book. you're scared all the time <laughs> with your ghost <laughs> stories. You I know. do like to be made <laughs> to laugh, but it doesn't happen very um, often. But again, Lee, I was saying earlier that I think it's really difficult to make somebody scared in a book. And it's also difficult to make somebody laugh oh, in a book. Yes. And, but a, a story like this, I think, needs humour. You know, because you again, you do not want the child reading this to think it's all doom and gloom and depression all along the way. And and that's the advantage of using, I think, a kind of a naive 13-year-old, you know, idiot child, you know, to, to just say all the stupid things along the way and 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 make you laugh and make Jessica laugh at times with his with his nonsense. Yeah. But the great thing is, and I agree with Michelle, I think Sam is is a fantastic creation, and oh, Jessica gets her name on the on the cover. Let's hear it for Sam. Yes, because I was taught by many people over a period of time there's no such thing as a stupid question, and I think actually Sam is us. You know, Sam is saying the stupid things that maybe we wouldn't say out loud because mm. we're older than thirteen, mm. but actually they're the things that a lot of us are thinking. Yeah, and and that you can be afraid to ask because, like I said earlier, it's a minefield. And you are, you're so conscious of not stepping on sensibilities, especially for people who are going through, you know, I mean, it's a tough world out there for, for trans people. It's, it's, it's not easy. It's not a, any kind of like walk in the park. So you don't want to set out to upset people, but you can just say something just to know and it can come out wrong, you know. And some, this is also, I mean, it is a minefield and it's always seemed to me one of the most 
um, I was going to say Stalin-esque areas of debate online because in terms of the most illiberal uh, nature of some of the comments which come any if anyone says the wrong thing or is perceived to have said the wrong thing in inverted commas and I wonder what and I know you had a, a degree of nervousness as to how it was going to be received what have as a result of which you've come off social media but what just in your own words what have you made of what people have said to you not just the people who have got loud mouths but also the people who've come up to you and and said John I think this well, you know, uh, sitting here recording this is actual publication day. And over the last four or five days, yeah, I've got huge amounts of abuse from people on Twitter, on social media, none of whom have read the book yet. Most of whom have anonymous names and, and you know, pictures that aren't of people and so on, and are just looking to shout at somebody about something. Mm-hmm. Last night I did an event in um, Piccadilly uh, where... Uh, the event was hosted, moderated by a trans woman. There was trans people in the audience and they were incredibly supportive of the book and felt that I, you know, seemed to have done a reasonable job in it, that one way or another, my heart is in the right place on it. You know, it could be a, a brilliant book. It could be a terrible book, but I'm not, I didn't write it to um, offend anybody. I find it very difficult to take criticism from people who have not read the book. Yes, cool. If you read the book, and then you want to turn around to me and say, I think the dialogue is terrible. The characters aren't authentic. Um, it just bored me to tears. Fine. No problem. But if you haven't read it, you cannot criticize it. So I think Twitter is just, it's, I wrote an article recently where I said it's just a place where adults go to scream at each other. Mm. And getting off it for a while, as I have now, it just feels incredibly freeing. I'm not worried about what's going on in the world, what complete strangers are saying. None of us would ever go up to a complete stranger on the street and start screaming abuse at them. Mm. But somehow our behaviour, well, not mine, I'm sure not yours, but in general, you know, our behaviour is feels different online as if something about the fact that we're not in the same room, that we're on a keyboard behind a screen, especially if you're using an anonymous name, mm. then um, that we can just behave like, like animals, you know, and the, the level of courtesy is gone. There is no place mm. for a safe conversation. But you must have found it reassuring to to, to go to that event uh, in, in Piccadilly and talk to people who aren't being represented, for want of a better word, yeah. by the by the trolls uh, on Twitter who I, I really did. aren't speaking for anyone other than themselves. Well, I don't. there's no relationship between the trans community um, and crazy people on Twitter. It's not the same. It's two different completely... Um, groups. I found it very encouraging. Um, and I also did get messages from trans people who had not yet read the book, but who had read other books of mine, particularly books for young readers. And I think were willing to give me the benefit of the doubt from books they've read before, that I'm not coming in here like, you know, Donald Trump or something and trying to, you know, just stir up controversy and annoy people, that the chances are success or failure of the book, the chances are I've come at this story with the best intentions. I think I, I want to ask you as well, John, about um, something that's that's common to um, many of us, which is that fear, the fear of being different, the fear of being perceived as being different, which you um, you dig into mainly through the parents. So the parents are constantly um, saying, look, we want the best for you. And why you are making a mistake is because of the impact it will have on you from other people. Other people's reactions will be so hostile to you that you will suffer. When actually what's at the heart of that is the parents 
who don't want even these grown grown adults not wanting to be different. We understand it when we see it in school children not wanting to be different because we know what the schoolyard is like. But we all assume that the the older we get, the more mature we get, that those kind of things don't matter as much. Actually, they stay. That and 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 it felt it felt to me very very strong that you would still have adults as we all are who hate the idea, so afraid of the idea of being different. Yeah, there's two sides to the parents here. I think one side of them is the really bad side, where um, they are they've basically abandoned their children to <laughs> their own lives. Yes, um, you know, the the mother is a, is a, a member of the cabinet is hoping to become prime minister. The father is her secretary. They're obsessed with politics, obsessed with everything going on in Westminster. And they, they're just not really aware of what's going on with either Jessica or Sam. And they're worried because um, when I wrote the book uh, like a year ago when I was writing it, I decided to put into it that there would be a, a leadership election coming up for the, that would make somebody prime minister. And um, there we are. Yeah. Um, but they're worried about like everything. That Is it if, Andrea if, Leadsom? <laughs> no. Um, as it, as it, um, as this, as that develops for them, you know, they're all they can think about is if this comes out, will you know, I, I've already got like, you know, 114 in my corner, 110 maybes and whatever knows, you know, um, who am I going to lose? Who am I going to gain? They're thinking about their own lives. And one part of this story is them realizing actually that the most important job anybody can do in life, I think, is probably be a good parent and that they have to come back to that. The other side of them is the fact that, and I think it's not unreasonable in its way, is that no parent wants their child to go through unnecessary difficulty in life. Um, you know, if like, Obviously, I, I can't speak for transgender people, but I can speak for gay people. And, like, you know, my parents were very supportive of me when I came out as gay. They, they were totally on board, no problem. But their concern was what troubles this was going to lead in my life. You know, this would be back in the early 90s or something. Would it be, it was a much more homophobic society in Dublin. Uh, would it be possible ever to find somebody to love? Um, will you be a, a victim of violence at a time? Nobody wants that for their children. I think, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't wish um, some type of difficult minority status on anybody, even while totally supporting that minority status in itself. Um, you know, if, if I became a father, you know, I would want my child to, to, to not face any of those difficulties. So I think there is the part of them that is, that, that is uh, feeling that way. They just don't want Jessica to be hurt in life. But they do it in the, the worst possible way and they have to, to figure that out. And it's, of course, it's a novel. They get around to that and they, you know, they see that in the end. John Boyne's book is My Brother's Name is Jessica. What do we get next from you, John, after this? Uh, a new adult novel next year. Um, a big, epic story over 2,000 years. 2,000 years? Well, <laughs> 2,080. <I should laughs> wow. wow. Already looking forward to that. Michelle, what do we get next from you? Well, I always said I wouldn't write a sequel to the Wolf Brother books, but I'm going back on my word. It's called The Viper's Daughter, and it's the sequel to the Wolf Brother books. Wow. John Boyne, Michelle Paver, thank you very much for joining us on the Books of the Year. Okay, so before we're done... Yes. There's this thing called the Podcast of the Year. Yes, I well, I know about this the because... Well, I know that your other podcast, yes, the, the, other, the other family, as that it were... That won the People's Vote. Yeah, it did win a People's Vote. So, but, but, so are we in the running against your... Are you running against yourself? Yes. How's that going to work? 
Well... Split the vote. That's what he's going to do. Yes, I appreciate that that might be slightly problematic. <laughs> I'm being told that I should fall on my sword and pull out of the race. Yes. In the other one. What an excellent idea. I'm very much uh, in okay. the in well, the corner I... of the producer there. Yes. You vote on for your both. Phone. Vote can... for both. Well, you, can you? Are you allowed to vote for both? Is it, what, what is happening to... De... Oh, can you vote for one? Rob Jordan says, How brilliant and ironic if Books of the Year with the amazing Simon Mayer and Matt Williams... One favourite podcast at the Brit Pod Awards, supported by the BBC Sounds app. Vote mm. now, everyone. Yes. Simon Carty, only if Matt's mum is there. No, she's not going to be there. Simon Midgley, I voted for you and Matt, but Matt will have to wear black tie and jodhpurs. <laughs> jodhpurs? <laughs> Good Lord. Um, if you do want to vote for us, uh, can you go to britishpodcastawards.com slash vote and you type in Simon Mayo or look at our Twitter page. So that's um, britishpodcastawards.com slash vote and you type in Simon Mayo or look at our Twitter page. Well, if we do if we do win, then I will wear a tux. And I'm not jodhpers. wearing jodhpurs. Come on. I have not bought a pair of jodhpurs yet. You know that that's what the nation wants to see. Clearly. I'll wear. Hey, if this podcast wins, I'll wear jodhpurs. You'll wear jodhpurs. We'll both wear jodhpurs. Oh my goodness! I am right. Well, I'm gonna. Yes. And you need a horse. And a horse. Yes. Right. Okay. I'm not bringing a horse or wearing. But I'm so happy that you're going to be wearing jodhpurs. Only goodness if you do. Me. Really? Anyway. Oh right, that's changed. If you would like to uh, to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can tweet us at Books of the Year. Yes. And you can email Books of the Year at, at Yahoo com. <laughs> yes. Well done. It's only been a year. I know. Thanks for me. So uh, please get in touch uh, and your reaction to Michelle's book and your reaction to to John's book, the books that you're reading, and tell us when you voted uh, at the British Podcast Awards dot com slash vote. Typing in Simon May, or you can look at our Twitter page. Is that all clear? That's all very clear. Well done, Matt. You've been, so smooth. You've been fabulous. As so ever. have you. 